89. That is the number of years since CBC's founding in 1932. That also makes the gala held on October 12, 2021, CBC's 89th annual dinner. It also was our first virtual annual dinner, but these are the times in which we live. CBC bestowed three awards this year, the Medal for High Civic Service, the Felix Rodin Award, and the CBC Prize for Public Service Excellence. The Prize for Public Service Excellence, which is given annually to an initiative that has improved New Yorkers' lives or government service delivery, this year intentionally went to an effort to mitigate the pandemic or recession. The prize was awarded to the Vaccine Command Center, spearheaded by the mayor's office for its efforts to get all New Yorkers vaccinated. This year's Rowan Award, which periodically honors an individual whose career exemplifies Felix's public service and commitment to New York Sound Fiscal Management, was presented to one of New York's inspirational leaders and trailblazers, Alaire Townsend. She's been deputy mayor, budget director, and editor of Cranes New York. CBC's current and former chairs and presidents named CBC's long-serving guiding light Chuck Brescher, research director emeritus, an honor well-deserved. Finally, this year, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg was awarded CBC's Medal for High Civic Service, which is given to a current or former public servant to exemplify CBC's values and dedication to serving the public. Secretary Pete's contributions span service to our country as a naval officer in Afghanistan, mayor of South Bend, and now Transportation Secretary, where he is leading the charge to rebuild and modernize our nation's infrastructure. CBC was fortunate to have Governor Kathy Hochul welcome Secretary Buttigieg and talk with him about the critical issues facing New York State. After their discussion, Secretary Pete delivered remarks on efforts to rebuild our nation and region's infrastructure. He also generously took some time to answer questions from CBC's trustees. We hope you enjoy this podcast, which presents the Secretary's and Governor's remarks. And to watch any or all of the whole virtual gala, please visit our website, cbcny.org. And of course... Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode of What's the Data Point. Take care. So I want to thank uh, the chair, Walter Harris, for his great work at CBC, and Andrew Ryan, the president of CBC. Also, our great awardees. Uh, Larry, I just heard you speak. Uh, incredible what you've done. And also, uh, I'm looking forward to introducing our, our secretary of transportation, you know, first of all, uh, all of you have done just an amazing job. As, as my lieutenant governor said, for 89 years, you've been a, had a pivotal role in making sure that we have not just good government, but smart policies to follow. And so many of the civic leaders here tonight have just worked so hard to improve the lives of New Yorkers, not just for today, but for generations to come. You've worked hard to understand the inner workings of state and city government. And I'm so grateful for your commitment to transparency and accountability. You're always laying out blueprints for great policy reforms that guide policymakers across government, from the MTA to housing to accountable budgeting. And we're lucky to have you as a partner and a resource. And I so look forward to working with each and every one of you as we deal with the pressing issues facing our state. And one of the most important things we need to do is deal with transparency and accountability in government. I have made this so crystal clear from day one that we will be a very different administration, that transparency and holding people accountable is important to me as well. So I'm grateful to Andrew and the CBC on this issue. I've already directed all of my state agencies to deliver a plan on how they're going to improve transparency literally in a matter of days. And we've improved our delivery of reporting of data because we want this information out to the public. It's not just the right thing to do, it's a cornerstone of effective government.
We've already taken many actions. We went from the, uh, the worst in the country to the best in terms of getting money out the door for those who need it, for tenants and landlords, a lot of other initiatives we've worked hard on. And I just want to say infrastructure is so important, and that's why honoring Secretary Buttigieg is so important here today. It gives him a chance to know more about us in New York. I've had a chance to work on many issues as a local government official. I have a real affinity for people who come out of local government, as he did when he was mayor of South Bend. I'm also a Notre Dame fan, marrying a guy from Notre Dame, and my son went there, so there's that special connection as well. But we are we, the way we're going to get out of this crisis is to focus on infrastructure, transportation, and under the ground transport uh, infrastructure, as well as our uh, many, many projects that need to be funded by the federal government at this time. So it's not just abstract concepts. We talk about infrastructure. It's what's affecting people's lives on the roads and bridges and our subways. It's getting people to work and getting people their jobs and, and hospitals when they need it or getting out for entertainment. We don't survive without strong investments in our infrastructure and our airports as well. Also, climate change is creating an opportunity for us to do something right, to right the wrongs of the past. We cannot ignore the effects of climate change any longer. And I will tell you that I will never forget the faces of people who are trapped in their homes, barely survived because of what happened with Hurricane Ida after we were so unprepared for this onslaught of rain. I'm committed in New York to making historic investments in smart, resilient, and green infrastructure. We're really rebuilding our roads and investing in water and climate infrastructure, leading the way on clean energy and transforming our airports, affordable housing as well, and delivering the public transportation systems that New Yorkers deserve. We're going to be bold and aggressive because we have no choice, and that's how I am anyhow. And we could not have a better partner in federal government. And I'm a former member of Congress. I know how the levers of government are so incredibly powerful in Washington when they work closely with the states. And that's why I'm offering my hand in friendship to our great partner, Secretary Buttigieg and the entire Biden administration. So he, is, he has been a secretary, has been a public servant who's answered the call to serve in so many different ways. And he's leading the charge now, building on his, his experience as a local official, something that I still know is so important. He's now leading the way to invest in our nation's infrastructure, building a more resilient and equitable future, which will bring more jobs and economic opportunity for our communities. He's a friend to New York, and we're so lucky to have him as partner. I'm so proud to welcome and congratulate Secretary Buttigieg on receiving CB, CBC's Medal for High Civic Service. Congratulations. Secretary, we're both former local officials, and that work to me is critically important because it helps shape my perception of the responsibility we have in state government and how to take care of the locals. And it's not abstract. I mean, it's, it is about how we get people places, more importantly, and get them there safely. And can you just share some of your perspectives on how infrastructure, in your opinion, coming out of local government and now in this federal position, how it really does affect people's lives in a way that we can tell the story for people to understand how critically important it is for people to support what the Biden administration and you're doing in Washington? One thing I've found is we've been working with members of both parties and both chambers to try to get this infrastructure deal through is that every one of them is from somewhere. And it doesn't take much persuading for the, the constituents who have sent people to Washington to realize uh, that their daily lives and livelihoods are at stake in the decisions we make or fail to make and making it easier to get around, making it easier to get through your everyday life. Whatever is important to you in your life, it doesn't happen if there's not a road to get you to where you're going or some safe means uh, of transit or, or, or conveyance. And, and that's exactly why this opportunity is, is reaching us at the right time as a country.
Right. Uh, and President Biden and all of you have worked on such an incredible job leading our nation's recovery during this pandemic. And the infrastructure bill, as I mentioned, is so critical for New York's recovery itself, which is 100% of my focus these days, battling the pandemic, but also how we work our way out, how we build back better, as you say. And if, as long as I can make a pitch for New York, you know, some of our critical priorities are the, the Gateway Tunnel Project, the Second Avenue Subway Second Phase, as well as four new Metro North stations to take people from the Bronx to increase transit accessibility in some underserved communities. And how do you view the role of infrastructure investment in terms of the impact on our recovery from COVID, you know, explain the interaction between getting out of COVID, but also investing in infrastructure and, and how they're so, inter how they're so uh, inter in intrinsically linked. Well, uh, I think uh, uh, as you are leading New York's recovery and as uh, leaders around the, the country are, are pursuing this, it's very clear that we cannot just be focused on rewinding to 2019. This is the very essence of, of what maybe is being said so many times that it just sounds like a catchphrase, but when we say build back better, we really mean that better part. Uh, the truth is, is what happened with uh, the pandemic and is continuing to uh, affect us in our lives and our economy has surfaced and revealed weaknesses in our old ways of doing things and weaknesses in our physical and social infrastructure that didn't arrive overnight, that it built up over a long time, but that we have a chance to do something about right now. And that's part of why you see such uh, such bold endeavors, if I may, to, to invoke uh, uh, the title of uh, Felix Roten's book, uh, un underway in this administration, because we know that there's no going back and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Well said, and uh, I'm before I was elected to Congress a decade ago, I'd also been a staffer on Capitol working for Senator Moynihan on infrastructure a long time ago. And that was the one area of maybe farm bill and infrastructure bills where there was always bipartisanship. No one fought over this. Everybody wanted something for their states and for their districts. And there was always people sort of jumped off the cliff together. There was a big price tag, but it was important to keep our economy moving forward. What's your prognosis this year in the climate that we're in as far as the, you know, your predictions on the success of the infrastructure bill that's under consideration? Well, as you note, it's one of the last remaining areas of domestic policy where bipartisan consensus is possible, or at least bipartisan overlap. And again, I think it's because of, uh, of citizens, communities, uh, civic organizations like this one holding their elected leaders accountable uh, because uh, everybody can point to the port, the airport, the road, the bridge, to the, uh, the, the piece of physical infrastructure in their community, in their commute, in their lives that needs attention. For that reason, I think the prognosis is bright, um, but it won't happen on its own. We still have to get this legislation through. And then critically, uh, as soon as it's signed, uh, departments like mine and administrations like yours will get to work deploying those dollars effectively. Uh, that won't be an easy thing, but it will be, uh, I think, a, a very welcome task because we all know just how great the need is. And maybe most importantly of all, how much potential we can unlock when we do make those investments that have always been those force multipliers on, on what makes America so strong. Well said, Mr. Secretary, and once again, congratulations on your recognition from a, uh, an organization that we have such respect for, and I look forward to seeing you in person next time you're in New York, and we will build back together stronger. Well, thank you. Again, honored to be with you, and uh, likewise, looking forward to partnering uh, for, for the benefit of New York and uh, as, as we work to deliver the president's vision. Uh, I'm eager to see what we're going to be able to accomplish together. And let me also, uh, though we may not be on screen, uh, address Nick just to say I look forward to uh, 
uh, uh, your father's book. I, I should say there's actually a copy of it on my desk right now, but let me hasten to add, it's a borrowed copy from the White House Library. So I look forward to uh, having one of my own and, and think that that is the exact spirit uh, that we need to be undertaking right now. Uh, to really recognize that, that uh, this is a season for bold endeavors. Uh, this is a season for big undertakings. And uh, this is a moment that we will look back on with pride if and only if we get it right. Uh, let me also add my congratulations to Alaire Townsend uh, on such a well-earned recognition of her service, her leadership, and the impact that she's made for people of New York and across the nation. And I want to thank the state of New York for producing Polly Trottenberg, uh, who uh, served in so many capacities in New York and is now our Deputy Secretary of Transportation, one of the most brilliant and capable and experienced minds in the field. And of course, I want to thank the Citizens Budget Commission for your service, for your tireless work to make New York the best version of itself, and for the, the humbling honor of this award uh, at a time when civic service means so much. I'm so honored to have been named. And I want to thank everybody who has served in some way, who has helped others, especially through these past 19 months. The texture of business, nonprofits, government, uh, ordinary people across New York who mobilized at an unprecedented scale to respond to a pandemic, to economic downturn, to extreme weather is inspiring and something in this challenging time that I think can give us grounds for optimism. And of course, there's an understanding in this organization that service is about more than just responding to the news of the day or the crisis of the moment. Uh, your very mission statement, focusing on the well-being of future New Yorkers, is I think very compelling at a moment like this. This idea of working for the generations of today and the responsibility that the generations in positions of authority today have for those of tomorrow, serving the people who will be affected tomorrow by the decisions we make today. It is, I think, a very natural human thing, especially after hardship, to try to restore and return as quickly as possible to what was there before, sometimes to an idealized version of what was there before. But that doesn't protect us against the challenges that are going to come our way in the future. And I need not preach to New Yorkers about this because this is a place that has legendary examples of rebuilding stronger after enormous challenges, after the fiscal crisis of the 1970s after 9-11, the event that really defined my generation's project, the recession of 2008. And I wanna take an example from a little bit further back in history that maybe isn't talked about as often, uh, a transportation related example from 1888, a deadly blizzard took hundreds of lives, shut down the elevated trains for weeks. And New York, rather than just clearing the tracks and moving on, responded by realizing that the time had come to transform transit in the city to create an underground subway system. And about 16 years after that blizzard, the first subways in New York opened and quickly became, and of course, still are indispensable to the city. The New York Tribune, a few weeks after the blizzard, summed up the reasoning for the, the bold decision that New Yorkers were on track to make. They said this, Tunneling under the Hudson and East River would meet a need which nothing else can. The city of today has been conquered by the elements for a time only because it has been content to develop on the surface and not at the roots. So New York made this decision to develop at the roots, beneath the surface. Beneath the surface also, uh, of course, being the, the very literal 
etymology of the word infrastructure. So now in 2021, facing multiple crises, the time has come for us to talk about how we can rebuild stronger at the roots, which is what this administration seeks to do. The need is urgent, it is everywhere. We see in so many places and in so many ways how we rely on infrastructure built generations ago. In fact, I was in New York recently at the uh, eager invitation of your congressional delegation. Uh, Senator uh, Leader Schumer and others saw to it that one of my first visits, uh, uh, trips as secretary was to tour the Hudson River Tunnel, which represents the very best state-of-the-art construction technology of 1910. And 110 years later, absolutely needs to be upgraded and secured. And that's one of the most dramatic examples in the country, but the examples are everywhere from my Indiana hometown to the East and West coasts and everywhere in between. We need not only to repair and fix, we need to modernize. And groups like the CBC have pushed for years for these kinds of responsible investments. So it couldn't be more relevant for us to gather now at the cusp of a once in a generation investment in our country's infrastructure. Let me mention just a few things about this legislation working its way through Congress that'll make life better for residents in New York and around the country. It includes $13 billion to make our roadways safer, including a safe streets for all program that will help local governments reduce serious injuries and fatalities, especially for cyclists and pedestrians. It represents the largest investment in passenger rail since the creation of Amtrak. We're gonna invest in expanding and modernizing public transit with the largest federal investment in transit ever. We can reduce the pollution in our transportation system, which is so vital because the transportation sector is the single biggest contributor in our economy to greenhouse gas emissions. New York knows as well as anybody that cl climate change has evolved from uh, a theory to an observation, from a prediction to an emergency, and it is now the challenge of our time. The infrastructure legislation would create the first Department of Transportation administered program dedicated to making our transportation infrastructure more resilient in the face of climate change. When transit is unreliable or delayed or shut down because of weather, the people hurt most are those who don't have other options, people who can't work from home, people who are paid hourly, often the very people that we have belatedly come to call essential workers. This is an investment that will allow us to build a network of electric vehicle chargers all over the country, in rural areas and in underserved parts of cities places where the gas savings might make the biggest difference in people's lives. Transportation can be an enormous engine for opportunity, but it has also often been a major source of inequity. This bill would create the first ever dedicated federal program to reconnect communities divided by inequitable transportation infrastructure, like highways that cut through brown and black communities, like highway overpasses intentionally built too low for the buses to travel under to get to the beach part of the legacy of Robert Moses right in New York. With this legislation, we'll have a chance to modernize our transit roads, bridges, tunnels, ports and airports, everything we've got to do so people and goods can move more efficiently. It is necessary for New York and for America to thrive. I wanna take a moment also to emphasize a particularly important issue in our economy right now, which is our supply chain. The pandemic and the rapid recovery of demand have accelerated challenges that were already present in our supply chain. And this is a global issue, but certainly an acute one here. We've seen COVID-related outages throughout the global supply chain. And in the US, demand coming back and shifting toward goods 
at the expense sometimes of recreation or travel that hasn't been available has made it very difficult for our supply chains to keep up with what is now a record level of goods moving through our ports. So in the short term, to relieve some of that pressure, we've been bringing together ports, labor, retailers, private freight, trucking firms, everybody in that ecosystem who surprisingly has not always been talking to each other to find solutions. Again, this is a global challenge, largely a private sector system. It won't be resolved overnight, but we are seeing already the ability to make a difference. The ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, the largest container ports in the nation, have committed to expanding their hours. And as we look to many countries operating around the clock already, uh, we need to continue building uh, out the, the ability to take advantage of our capacity here. And we're working as an honor, honest broker with the rest of the supply chain on additional commitments that I'm looking forward to sharing in the coming days. But then we've got to look at the long term. The place where the government can make the biggest difference is by fixing the decades old infrastructure these industries rely on and building it out for a different future. So this legislation invests $17 billion in our ports and waterways, investments on a level never before done federally for these purposes, plus billions for rail and intermodal infrastructure to build out our capacity. This infrastructure modernization is gonna take a lot of work. But the fact that it's gonna take a lot of work is also a good thing. The legislation along with the president's broader Build Back Better agenda will add millions of jobs, good paying jobs, many with the choice of a union. This is about securing the next generation of opportunity in jobs that people can raise a family on. It's about recognizing that essential workers are always essential, not just in the middle of an emergency, and ensuring that pay and benefits match the importance and the difficulty of their work. It's a transformational investment, and my department is taking very seriously the duty that we will have to implement it responsibly and effectively. Last thing I wanna mention is the sense of we, I talked about the impacts of the decisions we make, and again, I'm addressing an audience that I think exquisitely captures the different kinds of partnerships that are gonna be needed to get this done and to face all of the challenges before our country right now. We're gonna to turn to you for help in the coming years to do the kinds of things that New Yorkers did over a century ago, and this time to do it better than ever, to do it more inclusively than ever, to do it more safely than ever, with more equity in terms of who benefits from the projects. New York exemplifies innovation. The very fact of New York is one of the great achievements of humankind. And in the transportation space alone, there's so much more on the horizon. I know the, the idea, if you build it, they will come is associated in our imagination with the Midwestern baseball field, but it's also something to think about in transportation. It was true when some scoffed at the idea in the 19th century that New Yorkers would be willing to lower themselves beneath the surface of the earth in order to get around the city. And yet subways now are elemental to New York, to its emotional as well as logistical texture. Today, if we build better train service, better transit service, more people will use it. And as you're doing in New York, if you build safe, protected bike lanes along the Brooklyn Bridge, more people will use them. In other words, our transportation choices can predict, not just reflect what is going to happen in the future. If we do this right, harnessing the ethos of CVC to build for current and future generations with that focus on equity, on climate, on economic fairness, I'm convinced that we will look back on these years, on this season, these early 2020s as an inflection point where America became prepared once more for bold endeavors to be strategic and rebuild our country better than it came to us. And I know that all of us as stewards of this great project 
will find great joy and great purpose in the work that lies out, lays out in front of us. And I'm honored to be committed to doing that work alongside you. So thank you again for the chance to address you this evening. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for being with us to accept CDC's medal and for your very knowing and comprehensive remarks. We also very much appreciate your thoughtful conversation with the governor. We're fortunate to have two leaders working together for the future of New York. Thank you also for welcoming uh, some questions from our trustees. I hope it's okay if I jump right in. You know, one trustee was noting that the pandemic will have long-term effects on work and commuting patterns. How do you think New York, other regions should be planning for different transportation infrastructure since we might have very different mobili mobility needs? Should we be doing more microtransit instead of, you know, major expansions? What is your advice on the planning and the future in that? And what's the federal role to help facilitate that? So it's a great question. And it's a set of challenges that's uh, facing every city, every state, uh, every organization. Uh, we think about it not only from a policy perspective, but just as an employer of 55,000 people ourselves contemplating what the future of work will look like. And uh, shame on us if we can imagine no more than it returning to how it was in 2019. But what we know is people are going to continue to need to get around. Some kinds of trips increased as the way people allocated their time shifted. In my view, it's going to be more productive to find the principles that'll serve us well across the different unpredictable futures than to try to predict exactly what that future might hold. And that's where some of the things that, that I was sharing earlier around equity, uh, around climate responsibility, around economic strength are going to serve us well. We may not know exactly what the work week will look like, uh, how many people will have hybrid, traditional, virtual, or other uh, patterns of work. But what we know is that whether your commute is digital or physical, we can construct the infrastructure that that commute relies on in ways that bring access to more people, or we can do it in ways that continue to accrue benefits to those who already have the greatest access, again, be it physical or digital. So that's a principle that we can follow and that my department will respect as local communities decide based on the patterns you see emerging in your particular area uh, that, that need the most attention and that, that uh, lay out the specific plans. I'm convinced that very few of the answers need to come from uh, Washington or need to come from my department, but more of the resources do. And we're here to help support that local prom, uh, problem solving along these kinds of principles that we've discussed. Thank you. Another one of our trustees noted, to meet New York's climate goals, we need to significantly reduce emissions from transportations. Um, although the administration's talked about making the transportation greener, um, how will those policies support the electrific electrification of both buses and truck plates? Well, it's, it's critically important. Let me acknowledge this, the city council in New York with its boldness in stepping forward to electrify the school buses for the nation's largest school district by 2025. <clears throat> this is a big challenge and therefore a big opportunity. Uh, it's an opportunity for market making in more creation and manufacturing of electrified buses and trucks. Uh, it's an opportunity to drive environmental quality and environmental justice. Uh, and it's an opportunity to leapfrog some of the systems that are aging out. 
Again, this is one of the reasons why we need to make a historic investment in public transit, uh, not just in the support for transit to happen at the volumes that it will. And, and by the way, just last week, I pulled the numbers, there were 19 million trips on the subway. So no matter what uh, differences there are between the post-COVID and pre-COVID world, we know that, that people are going to rely on it more than ever. But also making sure that these means of transit are happening in ways that are environmentally responsible and creating opportunities. Uh, if we are developing and purchasing more, we're going to be making more. And this is one of the best places across the entire economy, in my view, to break the old false choice of climate versus jobs. The last thing I'll mention is that we need to continue to create ways for people to get to where they need to go without having to drag two tons of metal along with them. That's what transit's about, but that's also what micromobility is about. And there has been such visionary work in New York that's been applied in small communities too, to make it easier and safe to get around on foot, by bike or by other means. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us this evening.